Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the Academy's Deputy Director and one of the curators putting together nightly live streams with some of the most exciting thinkers around. If the names Michael Sandel, Malcolm Gladwell, Elizabeth Gilbert, John Cleese and Ruby Wax excite you, then head over to howtoacademy.com where you'll find them amidst a very full calendar of talks and in conversations covering everything you need to know about the world in 2020. This week's podcast guest is Maria Konnikova, the psychologist and author who made the news when her research into decision-making led her down an unexpected detour, becoming a champion poker player. Maria reveals the whole crazy story in a new book, The Biggest Bluff. To join journalist and broadcaster Hannah McInnes to tell us more. Maria, thank you for joining us. So tell us why you decided to take on this momentous task. Give up your life, your sleeping habits, all the stability that you had um, and sort of participate in your own experiment and um, not do the research in perhaps a more normal or relaxed way. Well, thank you so much for for doing this, Hannah, and for for hosting me today, um, first of all. And secondly, the way you phrased that question was just absolutely perfect because I will tell you about what inspired this journey, but I'm so glad that you mentioned the sleep deprivation and the change in uh, change in habits. I don't think I quite realized what I was getting into because I did not know anything about poker. I didn't know about the world. I didn't know about the life. I actually really didn't know what I was signing up for because what brought me to this book, what brought me to this journey wasn't what brings most people to poker, which is a love of games, a love of cards, someone in their family who plays poker, or the fact that they play chess already, or backgammon, or bridge, or Magic the Gathering, or something else. For me, it wasn't that at all. It was a fascination with chance, with the role that luck plays in our lives, with learning to tell the difference between the things that are within our control and the things that aren't. And I knew that I wanted to write about that, but I didn't have a way in. I didn't have a story. And to write a book, you need a story, you need a narrative, you need, you need something that brings all of these, what otherwise would be just philosophical themes together. And I read a lot and I read even more when I'm about to start writing something because that's kind of, that's my fodder. I think that, that writers first and foremost need to be readers. And I just started, you pepper it with so many wonderful quotations from absolutely everybody you yeah sorry to interrupt no no um absolutely and i read a lot of that while i was while i was doing my reading like james salter he, he came up while while i was reading about the role of chance and i at some point started reading about game theory because someone had suggested that if you're interested in chance this would be a framework that would be useful. And I always like to go to the source. So whenever I'm writing about psychology, I try to go back to the classic studies. You know, I'll read Freud, I'll read all those papers from the 1910s and 20s and 30s from the 1800s. They're awesome, by the way. Anyone who is interested in psychology, I urge you to read the old papers because they're so beautifully written. They're works of art. These days, psychological papers are nothing like that. So I love them. 
I decided to read the foundational book of game theory, which is the theory of games and economic behavior. It's quite a weighty volume. I think I probably understood about 2% of it. If that, I think 2% might be, might be generous. But I did understand one thing, which is that one of its authors and the father of game theory, John Maud Neumann, was a poker player. And that poker was the inspiration for game theory, which was one of the most revolutionary economic theories of the 20th century. And what von Neumann wrote about poker really intrigued me because he wrote that he, like me, didn't really like games. He thought that most games were really bad models for real life, for human decision making. Take a game like chess. He said, you know, it's great, can teach you mathematics, but that's it because it's a game of perfect information. There's always a right move. If you give me enough computing power, I will tell you what you're supposed to do. And life isn't like that because in life there are hidden things. In life there are motives, there are people, there's bluffing, there's what von Neumann called little tactics of deception. There are all these elements that make it not nearly as straightforward as a chess game. And he said it's, it's like poker because poker is a game of incomplete information, of knowns and unknowns, of people, of intention, of reading situations, gathering information, and trying to make the best decision you possibly can with incomplete information, knowing that you won't know everything and that the outcome isn't necessarily up to you. All you can do is put yourself in a position, statistically speaking, to do well. That became game theory, and I became fascinated by poker. I thought, what is this poker thing that this brilliant guy seems to think is the key to life? He didn't actually write that it's the key to life. That's me extrapolating, but it sounded like it. So I started looking up poker online and trying to figure out what this was and something just clicked in my mind. And I thought, wow, why can't this be my book? Why can't I actually spend a year learn the game from scratch, get someone really good to teach me, because one thing I know is learning, and you learn very well or much better if someone very smart who's very good at what you're trying to learn can serve as your guide. So I thought, why not try this and have that be the book and have the journey be a way to explore these themes that I'm interested in. So, I mean, you answer my question about why you chose poker, but perhaps you could go back a, a moment to um, mm -hmm. dedicate the book to your teacher, Walter, Mich Michelle, if I pronounce Michelle, that right? Michelle, yes. Um, who you studied under. And you, you say in memory of Walter, I haven't published my dissertation as I promised you I would, but at least there is this. Maybe we always have the clarity to know what we can control and what we can't. You say he's the marshmallow guy, but how did his... <laughs> teaching inform you and, and tell us a little bit about him and, and your prior experience in psychology. Yeah, um, I'm so glad you asked about Walter. No one ever does. And he is such a huge inspiration um, in my life. Walter, as you say, was the marshmallow guy. So I, I got my PhD in psychology at Columbia and I was Walter Michelle's final grad student. And he is known as the person who created the famous marshmallow test. So if you put a marshmallow, or actually in the real test, it wasn't always a marshmallow. It was whatever you like the most. Hannah, what do you like the most? What's your favorite treat? 
for me, it would be a chocolate chip cookie from a bakery on the Upper West Side of Manhattan that I absolutely adore. <laughs> Some form of delicious coffee, probably. There you go. So you'd have toffee in front of you. I'd have my coffee. freshly big oh coffee. You'd have coffee in front of you. I'd have well, probably three-year-old you wouldn't have coffee in front of you. So so you, you'd have coffee-flavored candy in front of you. It's the three-year-old part. Yes. Okay. Um, and I'd have this cookie, this freshly baked cookie that is smelling good and looking good and it's just from the oven and oh my god I just want to eat that cookie and someone tells me that I have to wait that I can't eat it and if I wait though if I wait for 10 minutes I'm gonna get two cookies and I'll be able to have them with all of the relish but more because there's going to be more of it and I'll be even able to save some for later they say you know if you can't wait that's fine just ring this bell and eat your treat but if you wait you'll be rewarded and what Walter and his colleagues found was that kids who waited longer, who were able to delay gratification, who were able to actually not eat the treat and wait for the experimenter to come back, they ended up doing much better in life. So this length of time that they could wait for their treat predicted how well they did in school, how well they did in university, their health outcomes, their relationships, their happiness, all of these things. And it became very clear that self-control was this huge factor, that the ability to cool hot emotional stimuli was incredibly important. And something that's not often mentioned, but which I think is really interesting, is that there were kids who couldn't wait, but then learned to wait. And those kids had outcomes that were just as good as the kids who could wait spontaneously. So it also taught you that these skills can be taught. Sure, some people might have them intuitively, but you can break them down and you can actually teach someone to have better emotional regulation, to be able to wait for longer periods of time and their lives turn out just as great. And to me, this was fascinating. I knew I wanted to work with this man for, for graduate school and I was really interested in decision making. And so we decided to kind of look how to at self-control in decision-making context for adults, not for children, and see, does this ability really make people better at evaluating risk, at figuring out how to act when there's very little control, where you're in a very uncertain environment? And we found the opposite. We found that people who are normally really, really good at controlling themselves, when you put them in a situation that's risky, that's uncertain, that's ambiguous, that keeps changing, where there isn't a lot of control, they get overconfident. They think they know what they're doing and they fall for something known as the illusion of control. That's when we think we're still in control of events and control of our actions, even when we're not. And it's a very powerful thing. We, it was so funny, we had people, this was a, a very famous study um, that was first done in the 70s that we replicated where people had to predict the outcomes of a coin toss. And a coin toss, we can all agree, predicting the outcome is not something that's skill-based, right? Total chance, you don't know how a coin is going to land. 50-50, heads or tails. And it turns out that in certain situations, people can be made to think that they're very good at predicting the outcomes of coin tosses, even very smart people. So we were talking to you know, Columbia students, traders, people who actually work in the finance industry. They're like, yeah, I'm good at predicting coin tosses. This is good. You know, I, I'll, I'll improve. And this just this was mind-boggling to me. And to see such smart people 
taking credit for things that they shouldn't take credit for and blaming other things saying, oh, it's not me. It's just this experiment is flawed if they started losing money. And it's something that really stayed with me. And I thought, wow, this is a major shortcoming of decision making. How do we parse that? How do we how do we learn to not fall for the illusion of control? How do we learn to actually figure out where our control ends and to make the most of it, to actually change our decisions when we need to, when we're the ones making mistakes, and also recognize when an environment is such that the outcomes are going to be what they will be and we can't do much about it. And so this, this just stayed with me and it was always in the back of my mind because we'd found this problem, but we didn't have a solution. And I think on some level, I kept looking for the solution and I ended up ultimately finding it in poker. And I want to come on because, I mean, the majority of what we'll go on to talk about is how you sort of navigated that between control and luck. Can I quickly ask you a question that you addressed at the very start of the book? Yeah. when you have to tell your grandmother that what you've decided to do. And she's not appalled, that would be a strong, too strong a word, but she doesn't approve, let's say that. Um, <laughs> and you, you have to have a conversation with her, or you, you maybe avoid it on that occasion, but one that you carry on having to have again and again, which is this idea that people equate poker and gambling. What, what is your well-practiced? <laughs> defense to someone who would say but you know you're, you're gambling how do you feel about that no uh, poker is not gambling come on grandma how many times do I have to tell you this I think appalled by the way wasn't wasn't too strong a word she definitely thought I, I was selling my soul to the devil but it, it is something that I've had to talk about a lot and I've had to prove that poker is a game of skill and not chance and I think there's actually a very very easy way to do that which is that in poker unlike in any other game in a casino you can win with the worst hand and you can lose with the best hand. So at the end of the day, it's the more skilled player who wins more often than not and not the player who holds the strongest cards. And there's actually a fascinating study that was done by two economists who looked at hundreds of thousands of hands of poker, online poker, and they found that on average, the best hand won 12% of the time which means that 88% of the time it wasn't the hand, it was the player. To me, that's just a fascinating statistic. And that number alone should convince you that this is not something like craps or roulette where you have to win or a blackjack. You can't lie to the dealer and say, no, no, actually I beat you. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know, you either win or you don't win. And poker is different. Poker is a game of people. It's a game of skill. It's a game of one-upmanship and you actually can win with nothing. And you can lose with everything. And, and to me, that's just totally fascinating. But to so many people, they just look at it and they're like, oh, casino, money. Oh, my God, this is terrible. Gambling. Ah, evil. And even to this day, I've gotten emails from people who said, you know, I used to be a huge fan of you and I'm not anymore. You've lost a fan because now you're an evil gambler. So that happens. And you do, you do. Um, although you, I think you find, you find gambling. I mean, you, you will let people read the book, but you find yourself in, in places where there's gambling going on. I don't think you like it all that much, but I um, don't, <laughs> but you do, you know, something that gambling has bad, quite a bad rap. Of course it does. Uh, gaming similarly does. And you do point out the, the benefits of, of, of gaming, don't you? I mean, the idea that, games give us a chance to look at luck and the way it informs our life. I feel like a lot of people I know 
who worry about their children gaming incessantly would feel perhaps relief at those words. Absolutely. I mean, I think games are not just important. I think they're essential. I think they're such an essential tool of learning because life is messy and noisy and complicated. And it's really, really tough to learn when you're in an environment where you're not getting immediate feedback, where there's a lot of noise going on and you can always, you know, blame something or take credit for something because there's just so much stuff. So you never really have to learn to tell the difference. And it's also real life, so there can be really bad consequences to bad decisions. In a game environment, there a few things are true. So first of all, it's not nearly as noisy. It's a game. There are rules. And so you can actually start learning because in a game like poker, you're getting immediate feedback and you're seeing what it is. And if you keep saying, oh, well, that's not my fault, you're just going to lose. You have to learn. You're incentivized to learn, especially in a game like poker where there's also money on the line because if you don't learn, that's actually going to affect your pocket and it's going to hurt in a financial sense. So money is a, is a very good way of learning quickly. I didn't make that up. Emmanuel Kant believed that. So, so let's bring it back to a very reputable source who wrote this, these wonderful passages about the importance of betting and the importance of actually putting money on things to help us calibrate our confidence and learn where we actually are, how confident we really should be statistically speaking. And he said, people don't normally do this, but it would be a much better world if they did. And I agree with him. And the other thing that games do is they help us practice and try different things in a safe environment because it's a game. And even if it's poker and you're playing with real money, the worst that can happen is you lose the money that you put into this game or this tournament. That's it. You know, no one's going to die. Nothing, nothing is going to happen that really wrecks your life if you're just playing one hand, one game. And so you can try different things out. You can experiment. And I think in all gaming, that's really, really important. And I've actually, it's funny, I talk about things I don't like. A number of years ago, I was assigned to write a piece for The New Yorker that I never would have written normally on first-person shooter video games. I don't play video games and first person shooters are not something that I would normally gravitate toward if I did. And I was, I was kind of shocked. I thought, wait, what am I supposed to do? And so I actually tried some of these out and I talked to some psychologists about them. And it ends up that even a game like that has a lot of benefits because it can help people put them in kind of this imaginative flow state, which can then help them overcome a lot of learning difficulties. This is actually a great therapeutic tool for a lot of children. I, I did not grow to love first person shooters. I don't like them, but I could see that even in something I really dislike that there can be value for some people in that sort of gaming environment. Let's talk a little bit about your aim, your, your challenge. What was your goal? I mean, you talk about money now and if Emmanuel Kant said that we would be, you know, <laughs> in, 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 um, but it wasn't for you, was it? The reason that you... No, no. For me, the main goal was to learn to make better decisions. And I think that has to be your goal. So I, I was very, very lucky that one of the best players in the world, Eric Seidel, agreed to take me on as a student. And he loves the game and he loves it for the right reasons. And he taught me very early on that people who want to get rich quick or that think that poker is just a way to make money 
they're never going to be good players. And oftentimes they're also not going to be particularly rich because that's an outcome. Money is the outcome. That's the result. And you can't control that. What poker teaches you is that you actually have to divorce outcome from process. Normally, we use the one as the proxy for the other, right? If I win money, I made a good decision. If I lost money, I didn't. That's not actually true because poker and life are probabilistic endeavors. So all you can do is make a good decision and think through things clearly and put yourself in a position to win. But there's never going to be a guarantee that you're going to win. So if you put yourself in a position to be a 75% favorite to win, you should make that decision over and over and over and over, but 25% of the time you're going to lose. And 25% is a lot. That's actually not an insignificant percentage of the time. So if you're looking at that and you actually think, oh, you know, I lost, that means it was a bad decision because I lost money, you're learning the wrong lesson. You actually have to not worry about that. You have to worry about how do I think clearly? How do I put myself in a position to be that 75% or 60? Even 60, you should take that decision percent favorite to actually have an edge and be in a position to win. And if you do that over and over and over, and if your focus is honing your decision process so that you are in that situation where you're a favorite, then eventually you're actually going to make money. But in the short term, money is not a good proxy and it's not a good motivator because you might not actually be improving your decisions the way that you need to be. You might not actually be thinking through things clearly. One of the first big lessons I had came from not Eric, but from one of his mentors, Dan Harrington, who wrote some of the foundational books of poker, Harrington on Hold'em. And I had a chance to meet him. And I remember I was complaining a little bit, you know, saying that, oh, I wasn't doing well. I was losing money because I just started playing and I was playing online at this point. Um, I was going to New Jersey every day because online poker is illegal in New York. And he said, good, good, good thing you're losing. <laughs> and I was, and I was really surprised. And he said, well, you learn from failure. That's actually how you learn. And you wouldn't learn if you got lucky right away, because if you get lucky right away, you're not incentivized to go back. You think, oh, I'm a genius. I have a natural talent at this. I'm brilliant. Let's go. And you're not actually incentivized to say, wait a minute, am I good or did I get lucky? And you don't have the tools to do that. You can't really go back and parse your decision process because you haven't bothered to be putting together those building blocks. On the other hand, if you're losing, if you're failing, then first of all, the incentive is there. So you stop and you reevaluate. You say, okay, why am I losing? Am I getting unlucky? Am I on the wrong side of variance? You know, did I get my money in as a 75% favorite, but this 25% just is playing out right now? Or did I make a, a mistake? Did I actually get my money in as a loser? Did I actually fail in my decision process? And if so, how do I get better? How do I improve it? What do I do next time? And that's how you learn. That's how you get better. Um, that's how you become a good player in any situation, not just at poker. I mean, that's one of the many life lessons I mentioned that come across in the book, that from Dan, you know, accepting failure. And then we won't have time to go through them all and people can read the book to find, but Eric, this wonderful character in, in the book he, he teaches you so much and you know one of the things that was he's always telling you is not to dwell on the bad beat <laughs> so many lessons for life I thought 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, that is one of, I think, the most powerful lessons he gives me. And for, for people who aren't familiar with poker, bad beats are when you do exactly what um, Hannah and I have been talking about, get your money in as a favorite, and then you lose. Um, and someone else you know, hits the miracle card and lucks out and beats you. You should have won, except poker teaches you that there's no such thing as should have because probability doesn't care about you. It's just, it's just variance. It's just statistics. The cards don't know who you are. And they're not saying, ah, you know, Maria should have won. Let me just put the card that's going gonna, gonna to seal it for her here. It doesn't work that way. It's totally random. And so sometimes the card that makes you lose is going to come out. That's a bad beat. And if you are around poker players, not even for long, for five minutes, you're going to hear a bad beat story. Someone saying, oh, there was this terrible situation. These days, whenever anyone meets me, that's usually if they play poker, that's the first thing they start telling me is their bad, bad beat story. And I'm not Eric, so I just smile and nod as opposed to saying what Eric told me when I tried to tell him my bad beat story. So I was in Vegas for the first time playing poker and I'd been there for a while. I spent, I spent on and off a few months in Vegas learning to play live poker. And I thought that I was going to have my first ever tournament cash and I couldn't have been happier. Someone hit the miracle card, bad beat. I was out of the tournament, I was devastated ran to Eric and started pouring my heart out. And he said, I don't want to hear it. And I just, I, I was so mad at him. I was so upset. I thought, you're my coach. You're, you're supposed to listen to me. He said, no, I don't want to hear what happened. Do you have a question about how you played the hand? And I said, well, I guess not. I mean, I had top set, which is one of the best hands you can have with uh, just three cards on the board. So of course, and he said, yeah, there's only one decision there. You get, how do I get the most money in the middle? <laughs> That's it. And you made that decision. So I don't want to hear the rest. And at that point, he made me promise that I would never tell him the outcome of a hand. He did not care if I won or lost because that didn't matter. All he cared about was how I was thinking why I was making certain decisions, whether I had questions about how I should act in a certain situation. He didn't care what the other guy had. And I say guy, but it's guy because 97% of the poker world is male. So hardly ever is it another female on the other side. And he said, I, I just don't care. That's not what's important. And telling bad beat stories is like taking your trash and dumping it on someone else's lawn. It's toxic, it's bad, it makes you bad to be around, and it's bad for your own thinking because it's trash. I mean, it's toxic to you because what are you doing? You're dwelling on the outcome. And what we've been talking about for almost the duration of this conversation, because everything keeps coming back to that, is you can't dwell on the outcome. The outcome doesn't matter. You have to focus on the process because you don't control the outcome. That's outside of you. That's chance. You control the process. That's skill. And you need to work on maximizing your skill over and over and over because then you'll be in a position for chance to go your way. You'll be in a position to get lucky more often than not. And if you just keep focusing on the bad stuff, keep focusing on the chance, not only will you not be learning, but you'll actually probably not put yourself in good positions because your mindset will be all screwed up. And you'll be dwelling on all of these bad things rather than taking the opportunity to learn and to just keep going. Because we only have so much emotional energy. And if we're wasting that energy, 
you know, dwelling on something bad that happened and telling it to other people. I mean, not only are we really depressing to be around, but we are not using those resources to do something about the things that we actually have some control over. So No Bad Beats is, I think, one of the most powerful lessons that he ever gave me because it's so crucial for everyday life. I, I find it so liberating to realize that you shouldn't dwell on these bad beats that happen, that instead you just say, okay, bad beat, let's move on. Right, let's, let's see what we can do next. How can I put myself in a position to get a bad beat again? Because if you got a bad beat, that means you made a good decision. A bad beat inherently means that you were the favorite. So if you never get bad beats, that means that you don't take enough risk. That means that you don't put yourself out there enough. Because if you only take the safest, safest, safest route the entire time, then you're just going to eventually find that you haven't given yourself any opportunities to actually do anything. Talking about taking the safest route and being cautious, <laughs> and also talking about something you brought up, which was the fact that it was most likely to be a guy. Um, that is a theme that really does last throughout the book. The idea, well, you, there's a chapter you call it a man's world. And, and you say that, you know, the biases we have to negotiate all our lives, perhaps as women, are put on a massive scale in, in poker. And that you realise that you've internalised more gender stereotypes than you cared to admit. That got you very down. So how has the game, I mean, it's obviously a predominantly male game, which you were navigating in. But how has the game made you, how did it make you think, how did it sort of intensify those ideas of gender stereotypes in your own life? And, and, and how did you then go on to sort of use that to try and alter them and, and change things? Yeah, it was really depressing to me, as you say, to realize that I'd actually internalized a lot of the messaging that society gives to women throughout our lives. Because you know, unfortunately, we still live in a man's world. Poker is really a man's world. I mean, 97%. But all of society is. And so women are taught, you know, people want you to be nice. People want you to smile. I mean, how many times has someone told you to smile? I can't even, I, I, hundreds and maybe even thousands for me. Um, maybe it's, it's different in the UK, but in the US, for some reason, all men think it's okay to say, oh, honey, smile. You should smile more, even a random stranger on the street. I bet no man ever got told to smile. So we're, we're supposed to be pleasant. Aggression, which is applauded in men, is seen as a negative in women. Women get penalized when they try to negotiate higher salaries, when they actually ask for money. And men get rewarded. Oh, look at that initiative. And there are so many things like that. And there's so much psychology work that shows just how pervasive all of this is. And I'd studied it and I'd written about it and I was very well aware of it. So I thought that I knew better. I thought that I was a pretty strong woman who was able to stand up for myself. And here I was in this environment that was all men because at the time I actually hadn't played with any women. So all of the tables that I sat at usually were all male except for me. And I found that I was finding it really difficult to be aggressive, that I was finding it difficult to bluff. Even as I was learning more strategy from people like Eric and Dan and some of the other players who 
started working with me, even as I learned what I was supposed to do and what the right strategy was, I couldn't execute it. There was something holding me back. And so I kept losing money. Even when I had really, really good cards, I wouldn't play them as aggressively as I needed to. I wouldn't bet as much. I wouldn't raise as aggressively because I wanted people to like me. I didn't want them to think of me as, oh my God, I can't believe I'm sitting with her again. She's the one who always raises and does this and does that. And that is not a good way to play poker. That's not a way to win. Um, that's just bad thinking. It's bad decision making. If Eric says, you know, why are you doing something, a reason of, oh, I want someone to like me is, is not a particularly compelling reason when it comes to a good reason to be making a strategic decision in a strategic situation. And so I actually, I was losing money. I mean, I was losing a lot of money. And so I had to figure out what was going wrong. And I realized that this was what, hap what was happening, that I cared more about being liked than I cared about winning and that I had to do something about it. Otherwise, it wasn't going to go well and, <laughs> and it wasn't going to be long for this world. And I really wanted to do well. I really, at this point, I really wanted to prove to myself that I could at least make good decisions. It wasn't about, like I said, making money. But these were bad decisions, and I knew objectively that I was making bad decisions. And so I had to work on it, and it took a long time. Realizing what was going on was first. And then I had to realize that actually what I was seeing as a weakness, that I was female, that I was being bullied, that they wanted to be aggressive towards me, could be a strength because they were underestimating me. And it's actually a superpower to be underestimated. Because if people underestimate you, then you can pull off a lot of things that you wouldn't be able to get away with otherwise. <laughs> I see you smiling. <laughs> I'm guessing that, that this resonates a little bit. <laughs> I just the book. I mean, it is, it's a balance, I suppose, that you struggle with, or not even struggle with, that you kind of navigate as you go through. How much to try and overcome those kind of qualities or those sort of, perhaps that sort of passivity and how much to use it to your benefit. Yeah. And you actually, you really can use it. So then I realized, you know, it's actually, it's amazing that people see me and think girl. And I say girl quite deliberately because there were people who called me little girl at the table. Um, there, that, that just really got to me. I think, I honestly think I still haven't quite gotten over the little girl <laughs> multiple years later. So people I think saw me as a girl, not, not even as just female, but girl is a little bit more kind of patronizing, a little bit more, you know, what are you even doing here? You're, you're out of place here. This isn't your world. And I realized that I could really use that against them. That if someone was trying to bully me and bully me and bully me, wow, they can't have good cards all the time. They just expect me to fold. And you know what? They're right because up to now I have been folding because I thought, you know, I don't want conflict. I'm just going to fold. So now I'm not going to. I'm going to actually fight back. I'm going to find the situations where I can use this, where they're bluffing too much, where they're being overly aggressive, where they're actually also not following optimal decision strategy, or at least they were when I was folding. But if I suddenly show signs of life and react, they no longer are. And I'll, I'll play that way. 
And if I figure out how they see women, how they see me as a female, I'll be able to figure out how to play against them. Because normally, they haven't really played with women. And oftentimes, they'll have one woman they know who plays poker, like their girlfriend plays poker, or their mother plays poker, or their wife plays poker, or their, you know, someone else, their, their uh, sister plays poker. And they'll oftentimes say something like, oh, you know, my girlfriend never bluffs. And so I'm like, oh, wonderful. You think women don't bluff. So now I can bluff you a lot more. Or they think that women always bluff because they just, they don't ever want to fold to me. Okay, fine. I'm going to bluff you a lot less. But you know what? When I have good cards, I'm going to bet so much because I know you're going to call me because you are incapable of folding to me because you don't want to fold to a girl. And so once I started realizing that this was going on, I started being able to use it against my opponents and I started winning. I actually started making money. T tell us a little bit about the, what you call the kind of the motley bunch. You do have these wonderful <laughs> moments. I mean, you travel far and wide on your, on your tours to all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful places. And just perhaps you could paint a picture of that poker championship scene, the sort of eclectic mix of people and their nicknames. <laughs> sure. So the Motley crew I, I, uh, I refer to are, are not musicians, although some of them are, but they're the best players in the world, these players who play the high rollers. And the reason I'm so fascinated by how diverse they are is because up to this point in my life, up to the point where I entered the poker world, I was used to you know places saying that they're meritocratic but that not actually being the case because people care where you went to school it matters who you studied with and what you studied if you're getting a job where did you work you know who was your boss what's this what's that and all these biases come into it and it's really can be really hard to get ahead and Merit is not necessarily rewarded. There's a lot of quid pro quo and old boys club and old girls club, who you know, where you're from, what your last name is, what religion you are. All of these things matter in life. And of course, in poker, obviously, nothing's a perfect meritocracy. So from, from birth, right, <laughs> the, the, the deck is rigged. So we, we do not live in a meritocratic world. Let's just say that. However, the poker world is the most meritocratic place I've found because all that matters is how you play. And no one can turn you away if you have the money to enter a tournament. If you actually can pay the buy-in, you are allowed to sit down. And if you're good and if you make money, it doesn't matter where you're from or what you look like or anything about you, you're allowed to play. And you really see that at the top levels because you have people from absolutely every single walk of life. So you have someone like my mentor, Eric Seidel, who dropped out of college. And he probably wouldn't have been able to get jobs at a lot of places because he dropped out of college, but he dropped out of college because he was really, really good at other things. And he's one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. So who in the world knows he's much better educated than most people I went to Harvard with. So, so it's, it, you start realizing that it's such an awful proxy. There is someone who grew up homeless, who actually oftentimes literally did not have someplace to live, who had multiple drug addicts in the family, who just went through all sorts of hardship and ended up overcoming not just that, but a lot of emotional difficulties that he'd had as a result, being one of the best players in the world. Someone who came from a tiny village in Belarus, and he actually 
hustled his way up and ended up, you know, making bets against the local bookie, getting good, then starting to play poker. And here he is, you know, sitting in Las Vegas, one of the best players in the world and on and on and on. And they're sitting next to a Harvard professor and they're sitting next to someone who has a degree from Brown and they have you said, you know, some of their nicknames, their nicknames are hilarious. So one of the people I got to know well, his nickname is Lucky Chewy. His actual name is Andrew Lichtenberger. And he is someone who is one of the most Zen people in the world. When I met him, I thought he was named Chewy after Chewbacca from the Star Wars movies, because he had this huge beard and all this hair and it was this reddish color, but it was because he ate Chewy bars. There's someone, Dan Cates, whose nickname is Jungle Man. I mean, <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. And a lot of times you meet this person and you have no idea where they're from or what their story is unless you ask. And if you do ask, you'll just find the most fascinating array of people and you'll realize these are brilliant minds who could have done anything and they choose to do this. And they end up making a huge difference. A lot of people say, oh, well, you're just playing a game for a living. But Take someone like Dan Smith, who I very briefly mentioned in the book. He's not someone I worked with extensively, but he's someone I really like and got to know a little bit. He holds one of the best charity drives every single year, and he doubles everyone's contribution to the most effective charities in the world because he actually knows how to evaluate effective giving and effective charity work because that's what poker teaches you, how to actually look at these organizations and figure out which ones will make a difference in the most number of people's lives and make the greatest difference. And so he and other poker players have given millions every single year to causes like this. And they're only able to do that because they were able to play poker and be very good. One of the main things that you, know, you learn, but also that you are already skilled at with your background is making judgments about others. And I'm, I'm just wondering how much you felt that that was what propelled you forward to such success? Because, we, you know, we've hardly t touched on the fact that you did do extraordinarily well. You won, you won a championship and you went on to participate in lots of others. But how much do you think your ultimate success was about your ability to read people? I mean, I think that psychology is always going to be my greatest edge because that's my background. That's what I'm good at. That's where my strongest contribution is. Yes, I ramped up on the math. You know, I learned how to use all of these software programs and run all these analyses and I'm not great at it. You know, I, I do my best, but I don't enjoy it very much. And that's not, never going to be my strong suit. But what I know, what I do know well is people. So I think that that is, that's definitely where my greatest edge came from, but not in the way that most people would think. It's not like I became really good at spotting, you know, when someone's left eyebrow twitches. It's not reading people in kind of the old fashioned or the, the movie sense, you know, the James Bond sense where you find a tell on the villain and then you can use that tell against them. No, it, it's more in knowing the psychological makeup of people, what motivates them, how they react to certain things, what the dynamics are at the table through observing them for long periods of time and really carefully taking note of this. How does this person react when they lose a lot? How do they react when they win a lot? How does their emotion seep into their decision making? And how do I take advantage of that? So it's, it's more of that and less of the, oh, 
right eye looking to the left, that means that this person is bluffing. That's what you say. There's a, it's a common misconception that there's a lot that can be read from somebody's face. And, you know, we all say that we can... <laughs> eyes or a window into the soul not so you say no no in fact we're really really bad at telling whether someone's lying by looking at their face about 50 50 so it's it's a coin toss whether we're right or not and in fact we look at the wrong cues we look at the jaw we look at the eyebrows we look at you know we look at all these things that don't matter and most people are actually pretty good at controlling their faces when when they need to you know we we do it all the time in real life think about how often you control your face in social interactions you know if you always mirrored every single emotion that you felt on your face you probably wouldn't have very many friends or social acquaintances because you would probably a, a little bit too much would seep out so we're very well practiced at it and i won't i won't go into detail on this because i know there are you have other questions, but it turns out that other parts of our body, actually, if you're looking at physical things, there are other parts of our body that give off much more information like the hands. So if you want to be looking for tells, you should be looking at the hands and at how someone's hands are acting, not at how their face is acting. And that's obviously yeah, another avenue that you sort of go into. I'm just thinking now is like, what am I doing um, <laughs> with my hands? I just lastly, one of the really important uh, lessons that you Learn that is so important in day-to-day -day life is just how important it is to focus and you know it's something we all know and still find so hard the distractions around us are just ever increasing it feels you know we do a hundred things at once and one of the things you learn around the poker table is that those people that you aspire to be are the ones that are focused so entirely no distractions absolutely and it sounds so easy you know the, the first thing that Eric ever told me when you know, I asked him, what's the one piece of advice <laughs> that you can give? And it was deceptively simple, pay attention. And you think that it's just such an easy thing to do, but it's not. It's actually really, it takes so much energy to focus because our minds are actually made to wander. That's what we do naturally. When we're not doing anything, there's this part of our brain called the default mode network, which is constantly scanning the environment and just reacting to different things. And back in the day, it probably helped us spot, you know, predators or when something is wrong. These days, it's like, ooh, a new pop-up. Ooh, you know, something's happening on Twitter. Ooh, something's happening here. You know, it's just, a, it's a perfect storm. So it's never been easy to pay attention whenever someone says, oh, you know, the modern world has really made it impossible. I was like, well, actually, medieval monks had problems paying attention. They called it acedia, the noonday demon, where they couldn't focus on their prayers and they found their mind wandering. So this is something that everyone has problems with. So pay attention means put away the phone. Don't be looking at the television and at the sports game that's playing because it inevitably will be playing if you're playing in a casino. They're going to have sports games there because people are betting on the sports. No, instead, actually just learn to focus on the moment, on the present, on what's going on. And that means learning to pay attention to the players. So even when you're not in a hand, really paying attention to other people, seeing what they're doing and noting it down and also paying attention to yourself, checking in with yourself. What's going on in my mind? What's going on in my body? What's going on emotionally? Because that will help you 
make sure that you're not going on tilt, which is a wonderful term that we haven't talked about yet, but it's a poker term for letting emotions seep into your decision process. So if you learn to be attentive to your own body and your own mind, you'll be able to spot the telltale signs of yourself getting either upset or angry or excited or all of these different things. And normally we don't see the lead up to it because we're not paying attention to ourselves. We're not paying attention to what's going on in our minds. And I think that it's one of the most important things we can do to be successful in any situation, really learn to pay attention. How much do emotions affect? I mean, are emotions always a bad thing in decision making? No, they're not. Usually, I mean, the, the, if, you, if you want to pick a yes or no, say yes, they're usually bad. They can be good. And there's actually very interesting research that shows that people who actually had lesions to the brain where they weren't able to experience you know, the negative emotions of risk um, ended up going broke in a gambling task because sometimes emotions are important. They're telling you something important. They're telling you, watch out. There's a good reason for why we experience them. The problem is that most of the time we let incidental emotions that have nothing to do with the decision at hand affect our actual decision process. So what we need to do is learn to first identify the emotion that we're feeling and that we're feeling it and then figure out where is it coming from? Is it actually something that's coming from the decision environment that I, that I should be using? Is there any feedback that I'm getting right now? Or is it something that's totally unrelated. Nine times out of 10, it's going to be totally unrelated. Actually, 99 times out of 100, it's going to be totally unrelated. And it will be something like, oh, that guy has been raising me every single hand. I'm so like, I'm getting so frustrated. I, I feel like I can't play any hands. Well, that doesn't matter. That actually shouldn't be affecting you. That emotion shouldn't be affecting you in this particular moment. Or you're, you're mad at someone else, or you're excited because something good just happened, or you're hungry. That's actually, that's something, that's, that's your body actually making you also make worse decisions. People end up taking worse risks when they are hungry, it turns out, because we focus on smaller, sooner rewards rather than larger, later rewards. All of these things matter. So being able to identify it and figuring out, should I be using this or not? And normally what you need to be doing is actually cooling, going back to Walter Michelle, cooling the hot emotion and saying, okay, I need to step away from the hot stimulus. I need to cool this emotion so that I can make the rational decision so that I don't eat the marshmallow and instead say, oh, it's just a, it's just a cloud and I can't eat a cloud. So I don't even want it anymore. Oh, there are so many things I, I want to ask you, but I, I must give over to um, the questions. So I'm going to do that now. Someone says, um, did you play bridge at all, which requires similar qualities to poker, logical thinking, understanding, probability, psychology. <laughs> and, you know, the main difference is you play with a partner, so you don't have total control of your own decisions. The interesting part of that is obviously the fact you do talk a lot about how so much of this was because it was all down to you. Yeah. Um, so no, I, I do not play bridge and I never have. Not that I, I think it, it's an interesting game, um, but for what I was going for, it was absolutely the wrong game because you play with a partner and that actually changes everything because what I was interested in was you know, the limits of agency of my own control. And in bridge, it's much more about you know reading people and actually 
learning to coordinate with, with a partner, which is very interesting and poses other strategic and interesting questions. But at the end of the day, you know, when you're making decisions in life, it's, it's a solitary pursuit. Um, and then someone, two questions, but um, they asked, I suppose you can wrap them quickly. It's a very good two questions. Do you acknowledge sixth sense and gut feeling? Um, and do you use in poker or life the power of words in their pattern to instill suggestion? So um, in, in terms of the first question, gut is overrated. Do not, you want to go with your head and not your gut. And I get, I get very mad at people who say, oh, it's all in the gut and intuition because it turns out that people have two types of gut feelings and they're both equally strong. The first type is completely right. Yes, you should have gone with your gut. And the second type is completely wrong. They're both feel exactly the same. And when it comes to us being able to identify which is which, study after study shows that it's about 50-50. We don't have a clue. And you might think that that's not true because your memory is selective. You'll remember all of the times your gut was right and you didn't listen to it, or you did, but you'll forget all the times when you made a really, really stupid decision because of your gut. And that's just our selective history bias. <laughs> and And... So I would say you should always be going with your head unless, so the only way your gut is actually right is if it's not your gut, if it's really your expertise. If you are someone who's an expert in this domain, who's done this thousands and thousands and thousands of times, what you think of as intuition might actually just be, well, not might actually be, but is knowledge that you don't have conscious access to. So someone like Eric, if he says, you know, this spot, I think this person is bluffing it. My gut tells me it's bluffing. It's not his gut. It's the fact that he's played with this person hundreds of times and has actually encountered this in this situation tens of thousands of times over the last 30 years. And so he's picking up on a pattern subconsciously that his brain has learned because our brains are really, really good at learning pattern recognition, even when we don't know it. And he doesn't necessarily have conscious access to it because he's never had to explain it to himself or explain it to someone else. So it feels like gut, but it's not. It's expertise. And it's in that sense, yeah, definitely follow your gut. But unless you're someone who has very, very rigorous subject knowledge matter, dismiss the gut and actually think things through and follow logic. And if your gut tells you something else, screw the gut and go with the head. So I feel very, very strongly about this. And I think, I think otherwise it really screws us up. Message. Poker is very much an individual endeavor. How does it correspond to work as part of a team and psychology associated with teamwork? Um, So I think that that's something that poker teaches you in the sense that it teaches you how to be more empathetic because you have to learn how to read other people and how to actually see the world from other people's perspectives rather than what you would do in this situation. What would this person do? It's something we're really, really bad at normally. Normally what we do is we take ourselves and we project ourselves onto someone else. We are our own basis for for everything because we're egotistical and we see the world from our own point of view. So poker forces you to actually try to figure out what someone else is thinking accurately 
because that's part of the way that you're going to make the right decision. And so, whereas in poker, the reason you're doing it is to beat them and to take advantage of this, of the dynamic in real life, those skills are essential to teamwork, to working effectively with people, to learning to read people so that you can get along with them. So I think actually, even though poker is a zero sum game in the sense that, you know, I win, you lose, you lose, um, you win, I lose teaches you a lot of very positive some skills that can be used in very positive ways outside of the poker table. And um, so somebody asks whether you learned, and you've meant, you, you, le you mentioned it when you were speaking about Amanda, but what specific lessons you learned about yourself through your journey? Well, we already talked about kind of the, the female element of that. Um, and I just, I mean, I also, there's, I, I go into a lot of the psychological lessons that I learned about myself um, because I ended up working with a mental game coach who helped me look at myself a little bit more objectively. Um, so I learned a lot about, you know, what types of risks I was comfortable with, just what kind of person I am uh, that I didn't know before because I was forced to confront it every single day at the poker table. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for, but um, just a mentioned people are saying um yes there is a link that you'll be sent um within about 24 hours so that you can watch it all over again or if you <laughs> went to have a cup of tea i think someone had a, a bad internet connection so yes you can watch that again and the how to academy will send you the link um shortly afterwards uh, overnight or, or, or by tomorrow morning and also there'll be a link to where you can buy the book from a nice independent bookshop which needs supporting uh, in these times um, and I don't know if you can see them Maria but lots of lovely people with not questions but just saying to you thank you so so much for um, fascinating knowledge and insight oh. someone saying they've taken lots of notes to go off and, and make change to their life so <laughs> thank you very much indeed and thank you to you all for tuning in thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute pleasure this week's show starred Maria Konnikova and was presented by Hannah McInnes it was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. We're back next week with more insights, but if you can't wait, you can hear more from our enormous archives at howtoacademy.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.